Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name is Roy and I'm the audiobook producer here at Penguin. We've got a reading for you today from Hollis Hampton Jones's latest book, Comes the Night. In 2003, Hollis Hampton Jones's debut novel, Vicious Spring, shocked and intrigued readers with its daring and thought-provoking depiction of the lap-dancing world. A cult hit, Jay McInerney called it fast, nasty, shocking and strangely touching, confessing, it knocked me out. In this year's follow-up, Comes the Night, Hampton Jones draws on her personal experiences as a model in Paris to produce an eye-opening insight into the fashion world, as well as dealing boldly and compassionately with a range of taboo and controversial subjects. A stark, unflinching novel with a dark heart, Comes the Night chronicles 19-year-old Mead's fevered and tormented journey through the frothy, glossy world of fashion and the shadowy recesses of love. In this extract, recorded with producer and engineer Roger Moutineau, Hollis Hampton-Jones reads from the opening of the novel. shared a womb, floated around in there together, grew fingers and toes, sucked each other's thumbs, developed hearts, lungs, and brains. He was out of there first, kicked and pushed his way through, but I had a hard time getting out. The umbilical cord was wrapped around my neck, so every time I tried to escape, the noose tightened. The doctor, who was an Italian, sang an aria while he squeezed my head with his forceps, yanked me out and sliced the cord. I didn't cry, even when they hung me upside down. Nurse's finger in my throat cleared the airway. Ah, breath, life, and a brother. double dose of Adderall and more coffee starts to work and suddenly I am plein d'energie and so I go outside and I start walking very, very fast. 
I pass a lot of people. They're just a blur of trench coat or red scarf or dark glasses or shopping bags or jutting baguettes. Cobblestones, dusty shop windows, wooden signs with blurred letters, a withered French flag. I get to the river and it's in a big rush too, rushing gloomily along, grey-greenly along within its bricked banks, its bridges, and I wonder if it feels confined. But rivers can't really be confined. That's the beautiful thing about rivers, the sly power of water carving through rock or whatever gets in its way. My feet tap, tap, tap across the wooden bridge and then I slip into a random cafe and stand at the bar for a shot of espresso and a cigarette, the Paris speedball, along with several other rush cravers. Coffee in the right hand, cigarette in the left. I notice that my hands are almost trembling as if, as if they have a mild electric current running through them. The man next to me, tall in a black coat with a wave of silver hair rolling across his head, starts looking at me in that way like he might say something. I stare intently at my hands and zoom inwards, and then I can't escape from a gruesome image, my hand rolled in breadcrumbs frying in a cast iron pan. The man doesn't talk to me. I stub out my cig, plunk my euros down on the counter and head back out. But I don't know where I'm going exactly, and I want to stop thinking about the fried hand, and I feel so weird, and I don't want to be alone anymore. I want to be with Ben Ho, at home with Ben Ho, and really, for her sake, it'd be better if Linda is not there, but I think she is. I think she is. She's infiltrating. As I climb the stairs to our apartment, I imagine an army of twins marching behind me two by two with linked arms holding pickaxes. Twenty sets of male-female twins. They're silent except for their heavy footsteps. I open the door and proceed into the kitchen. She's there, leaning against the kitchen counter, eating an apple. The temptation, the traitor. Ben-Ho is slicing cheese. Hey, he says, without even looking up at me. She says nothing with her mouth full of forbidden fruit, but continues gnashing her teeth. It's amazing how well my fist fits into her eye socket as if it were designed to be there. My fist, her hollow. When I recoil my arm, readying myself for one more insertion, I see the rabbit fear appear in her and she ducks her head, shields her eyes with her hands. The cheese knife clatters to the floor and... My army drops their pickaxes, and then, with a few twists from Ben-Ho, I'm pinned on the ground, unable to move his knee across my chest. My heartbeat thumps into his leg. I relax into him, allowing his weight on me, absorbing it. His hair hangs down over his face, and I don't even have to touch it to feel its smoothness interrupted by tangled sections. What the fuck are you doing? His breath charges and retreats out of his mouth, into his mouth. I watch his face as he yells at me, ruining my life. But I stop hearing his words as he takes one hand to my neck and begins to squeeze, constricting my airway. My body quakes as a deeply implanted thrill rises up my spine. Her wailing is a distant siren, the comforting sound of a patrolled city. A dark city, a nighttime city, with cozy lights burning in windows, making me so sleepy, overcome by the sweet narcotic of sleep. 
I wake up and can't remember where I am, and for a moment he's a stranger to me, the man lying in bed next to me, his arm curled round my body, trapping me. I fling his arm off and sit up, looking out at the terrifyingly unknown room, too much white, nothing for my mind to grab onto, my heart stampeding, the man sleeping, calmly breathing, and then the realization, this is Majid. I am in Majid's bed, in Majid's apartment. But this doesn't stop my crashing heart, and I don't even know where Ben Ho is, where my twin is sleeping, where she lives. I'm going to have a heart attack. I'll die on white sheets, and Majid will wake up and find me, and my soul will be released, and I'll be back in the womb with Ben Ho. I smooth my hair, fold my hands over my chest, and wait to die. But I become so calm at this thought that my heartbeat returns to its normal, sluggish state, and I don't die. So I get up and have a cigarette. Sleep is not an option, even with Xanax. Maybe a bath. And I can scope out the bathroom while he's sleeping. That's where you really discover things about people. It's the soul of the home, where you look yourself in the eyes, where you wash off the outer world, where you dispose of your waste, where you keep your pills. Maybe there's some high-powered sleep inducers and there are some nightmare slayers. He wouldn't mind if I took one or two. Some detailed ransacking here, and then I reach into the back of the drawer and find a tiny green vial, which contains a powdery substance. This looks promising. Coke, I guess. I've never tried it before. I've always gone for the label, the controlled. But I'd like to feel what he likes to feel. I go back into the bedroom to make sure he's still asleep. I listen to the soft rhythm of his breathing and gently kiss his cheek. His breathing pattern remains smooth and steady, a calming loop. I'm just going to try a little bit. I guess I'll need a snorting utensil, so I take a 20 euro note from my purse and roll it up. A credit card, too, to form it into a line. I saw Scarface. I know what to do. I pour a wee bit of the powder onto the marble counter, scrape it into formation, and vacuum it into my sinus cavity. The vial returns to its home in the back of the drawer. In the living room, I light another cigarette and wait to see what happens. It doesn't take long, just a one cigarette time unit. I feel it spread joyously through my cells and I don't think this is coke because it's making me want to lie down. We're talking narcotics here. I recognize a loyal friend, but this is a more immediate and intense friendship, a remarkably comforting friend who caresses me and whispers to me of love. Yes, I whisper back, I love you too. I slip into bed with Majid and he rolls over and wraps his warm body around me, a living cocoon, and I think of those strange creatures who live underneath ice in the deepest, darkest waters of Antarctica, clinging to the magnetic pull of the bottom of the earth, wiggling luminously, sketching colorful shapes in the darkness with their internal glow. I float suspended beside them, 
purple-green sea plants sprout from my calves and then my thighs and their tendrils sway to the pulse of the deep. I'm not afraid of the river today, and when I walk out onto the Rue de Rivoli, I head straight for the Seine, where the sun is kissing its green face, and along the banks people smile when they see me, and I walk underneath a bridge and find three men living there. They have a bed and a desk, books, and a bottle of wine, bearded faces and long hair, three wise men, and they give me a sip of their wine and let me lie down beside them and close my eyes. Torturously bright light sears through my eyelids. Where am I? Floodlights and an amplified voice. The voice echoes, bouncing off the underbelly of the bridge. It's a batumouche, the trawling, floating tour that thankfully passes on by. I'm on a damp bed. I remember now the three men. I sit up and look around me as the punishing beams recede. The men are still here. Two of them are playing chess, and one of them is looking through my portfolio. He runs his fingers thoughtfully through his matted beard. One of the chess players notices me. Elsa Reveille, he says to his friends. The guy looks at my photos, closes my book, and asks me, Ça va, mademoiselle? I reach into my pocket for my cell phone to see what time it is, but my batteries are out. Vous avez faim? One of the chess players offers me a chunk of bread and some wine. A wave of nausea sweeps over me and the edges of my vision flutter the warning flag of an excruciating headache. I try to concentrate on one focal point to ignore the heaving periphery, so I look at their chess pieces, worn in dirty little ivory statues. One of the points on the crown of the white queen is broken and the center of her is cracked. I start to cry, and the three men huddle around me, a human fortress. One of them is still holding the bread. Inside their fortress, words start spewing out of me. J'ai peur. J'ai une honte si profonde en moi. Un monstre avec des tentacules pointues, glissantes, qui poussent et se multiplient. J'en suis pleine, donc je n'ai pas faim. I'm scared. I have a shame so deep inside of me, a monster with pointed and slippery tentacles that grow and multiply. 
I'm full of them, so I'm not hungry. The three of them look at me in a kind silence with their bloodshot eyes. Finally, one of them hands me the wine and says, En ce cas, buvez. I drink. I drink until all I can manage to say is, Taxi? The guy who had been looking at my portfolio stands and gathers up my book and my purse and offers me his arm. I grab onto the greasy brown corduroy of his jacket and we begin to walk. Au revoir, say the chess players, and they turn back to their game. As we approach the stairway to the street, I have to stop to throw up. I lean over the banister and produce a wretched trickle of bile. The man stands politely waiting for me. I throw up three times before we reach the taxi stand. I find myself in a black car with Arabic music singing out from the speakers. He hands me my portfolio and my purse. I look inside of the purse to give him something. The first thing my hand touches is my rolled up 20 euro note. Oh yeah, that. I unroll it and offer it to him. His accepting fingers are stained yellow. Merci, bon courage. When he closes the door, the wavering voice in the speakers throws me into confusion for a moment as I search my mind for the address, the address of the empty apartment. Liquid Majid seeps secretly from me as I sit in the hairdresser's chair, watching myself in the mirror as an Asian guy with green hair standing out in spikes from his head, a Statue of Liberty crown, brushes my hair. Suddenly he sets down his brush and looks at me with disgust. I'm not going to do your hair. What? He picks up a comb, so I guess he was just kidding, but it hurts as he scrapes the fine teeth against my scalp. He thrusts the comb in front of me. Look, you have lice. And I see the translucent creature with its dark spot inside of it. And what is that dark spot? Is it blood? My blood? It moves on the comb. It has legs. It has antennae. And the sound of my horror fills the room. And I can't stop screaming. And I feel the swarm of them now crawling on my head. Get them off of me! I smack my head over and over trying to kill them. Max appears and grabs my wrist. Stop it. What are you doing? Lice are crawling all over my head. Don't worry. They won't show up in the photos. I burst into tears, ruining my makeup. The makeup artist and hairdresser are both looking at me with hatred. I can't do it, I say to Max. Liebchen, do you know what it would cost to have to reschedule this shoot? Everyone is crowded around me. I want to cut off my head to stop the itching. A tiny Asian girl, an assistant to the hairdresser, I think, works her way toward me and holds my hand. She looks about 12 years old with her black hair in a ponytail and her lips shining with pink lip gloss. I'll get them out for you, she says in a very high, soft voice. Max looks at his watch. The girl leads me back to the chair and produces a fine-toothed metal comb. 
I ransack my purse in search of my Xanax. I take three with no water. Okay, okay, says Max. Everyone take a lunch break while the model is deloused. When he kisses me, his lips send off an electric shock and I feel the burn of this miniature attack for a prolonged moment. He blindfolds me again, and the thing about that is it does heighten my other senses. I hear his busy hands on the rope, his elevated heartbeat, and outside a large boat sloshes water carelessly against the banks and the staccato argument of a man and a woman grow louder and then more distant before it disappears. As he lifts my head and slides the noose over it, I smell my own arousal. Then the friction of rope around bedpost, connecting with a tightening rope around my neck, feeling the shape of him bit by bit as he enters me, and then the friction of him, the almost unbearable pleasure of it, my seeping walls, the gradual constriction of my throat, and the mouth-to-mouth, -mouth only instead of giving me more air, he's taking more away, filling my mouth hole with his tongue, the delicate flicker of the intricate muscles of it, and then I'm moving at a speed that I've never felt, never felt possible. The universe has a hole, a beautiful hole, that looks like it's made of meteor showers, or zillions of simultaneously shooting stars or tumbling diamonds. That was Hollis Hampton-Jones reading the opening of Comes the Night. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, please visit our website at penguinpodcast.co.uk and if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at Penguin Podcast on Twitter. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.